This is the sixth day of this January 2021 seven-day Rohatsu online session. Uh, we're going to stick with Hakuin uh, today. That's we've been reading from him the last uh, five days. Uh, I considered switching horses uh, this morning to a different master, but uh, the text that I had with me was so dry and uh, well, just was made it dry compared to Hakuin's writing that I uh, decided to go with Hakuin again. And now we're <clears throat> we're uh, to the book book called the Zen Master Hakuin. This is a the third one I've used this sashin. Uh, the first one was Wild Ivy. The second one was the the essential teachings of Zen Master Hakuin. Those are both translated by Norman Waddell, and this one, the Zen Master Hakuin. Uh, it's translated by Philip Yampolsky. And I'm just going to pluck out a couple of segments here that I think <clears throat> might inspire one or two people here uh, as we approach the last day of Sashin, seven-day Sashin. I'll just pick right up in his, uh, what he calls, Orate Gama. How truly sad. Human beings are endowed with the wisdom and form of the Buddha. There is nothing they lack. Each person is possessed with this treasure jewel that is the Buddha nature, and for all eternity it radiates a great, pure luminescence. That, by the way, is whether or not we've awakened to it. For all eternity it radiates a great pure luminescence in every single person without exception. He continues, But while dwelling in that true land of the pure Dharma nature, where this very world is the light of nirvana, people, because their eye of wisdom has been blinded, mistake this realm for the ordinary evil world and err in thinking that it is peopled by sentient beings. Sentient beings is the term commonly used uh, in uh, previous centuries to refer to unenlightened, so-called unenlightened people, and thinking that it is peopled by sentient beings. Here he kind of restated what the Buddha himself is said to have cried out at the moment of his awakening. He says, each, each person is possessed with the treasured jewel that is Buddha nature, and for all eternity it radiates a pure, but because our eye of wisdom has been blinded, and so forth. The, the words most commonly used for the Buddha's experience were wonder of wonders. From the very beginning, all beings are endowed with enlightenment, but because their minds are turned upside down through delusive thinking, they fail to perceive this. 
more or less those words. This is the great predicament of human beings is that with not a single exception, every person, the person we hate the most in the world, pe people who seem most, most sunk in ignorance and cruelty, equally are endowed with this luminous mind of wisdom and compassion. And then the contraction, but because people's minds are turned upside down through delusive things, because of our conditioning, because of the, the habitual ways we have clouded our minds, because of our misconceptions, about who we are and who others are and the nature of reality because of all that we fail to perceive the exquisite perfection of ourself and all all others no wonder he begins this paragraph by saying how truly sad And then he continues, In this one birth as a human being, one so difficult to obtain, they spend their time wandering about like ignorant horses and oxen. It is uh, like, like animals just pursuing um, physical pleasure. just wandering here and there for what we mistakenly think will bring us some kind of lasting peace of mind and happiness. Uh, when he says this one birth is a human being so difficult to obtain, um, there are analogies that have come down to us from ancient times about how how exceedingly rare it is to have earned the birth of a the rebirth of a of a human being uh, the one of my favorite is uh it's as though this is from some sutra from centuries ago it is as though it's like a, a sea turtle that comes up to the surface of the of the water uh, just once a once a year and the the likelihood that that one day when it pokes its head up through the surface of the water the likelihood of it happening to come up in a, a wooden yoke let's make it anything a inner tube uh, that it would come up right there in the inner tube, this happened to be floating on the ocean, uh, that's how rare it is for us in our uh, beginningless, endless journey through the realms of various realms of existence from hundreds and thousands of rebirths that we would be born as a human being. Well, you can take that or leave it. 
I want to take it <laughs> because to appreciate this birth, this, this human life, uh, is likely to get us to work on using it. Again, he's going talking about the the average person with no discrimination whatsoever. They extinguish the light and wander through the realms of the three painful evil existences and suffer the sadness of the six forms of rebirth. Uh, let's see here. There's a footnote. don't think we really need it, but well, there might be something. Uh, stay with me. Don't go anywhere. One of these books where the the footnotes are appeared uh, uh, irregularly and intermittently in in spaces. All right, I'm going to do my best here. Um, the the reference was uh, through the wandered through the realms of the three painful existences. Uh, that usually means the three lowest of the six realms of unenlightened existence. So the three lowest is the realm of hellish suffering, the realm of uh, endless craving, insatiable craving or addiction, that's the realm of hungry ghosts and thirsty spirits, and then the realm of animals, which is a realm of, of uh, almost blind instinctual reactivity, of uh, always uh, either eating or being eaten, a life of, of fear, and the six forms of rebirth, well, that would be the six, all six realms of unenlightened existence. So, in other words, he says, wandering through all that, uh, lifetime after lifetime, they grasp at the true land of the Buddha's unchanging, eternal calm, and in their fear and delusion, cry in pain, believing it to be eternal hell. They pride themselves. That, wait, let me just stop there. Believing it to be eternal hell, there's no, there's no state of existence in the, in, that is that is eternal. There's no everlasting hell. That, that we, we in Buddhism, there's reference to these this hell realm. It's just a realm of terrible suffering, and it's not permanent. Nothing is permanent. There's no permanent everlasting hell or heaven. Everything is in flux. We always have the freedom to evolve so that we don't devolve. Evolve, we evolve through doing what, what we're all doing right now is learning on the mat, learning to detach from thoughts and, and find some freedom uh, where we're not just reacting 
to things. We're not bound by our karma. We have some freedom there to, in, in, with respect to how we respond to people and circumstances and conditions. He goes on, they pride themselves in their ordinary, pointless, insignificant views, reveling in the small, prejudiced learning that has entered into their mouths and ears. Well, there I can't help but think of all the idiocy on social media and uh, how, how people now so reflexively have to say what they like or don't like, thumbs up or thumbs down pride themselves in their ordinary, pointless, insignificant views. He goes on, they do not believe in the Dharma, have not listened to the true law, end their days prating nonsense, and have failed to guard even for a moment the mind that is the master of true meditation. What is that mind? The mind that's the master of true meditation. It's our, our fundamental awareness, which is way, one way to understand uh, Buddha, awareness, the capital A. More pitiful still is that they revolve for eternal kalpas in the coils of their evil actions. And even more frightening, they earn only the bitter fruit of the long nights of birth and death. Now I'm going to turn uh, about 30 pages deeper into the book and... Uh, read another segment here. He quotes, he quotes the Chinese master Da Wei, who I mentioned earlier this week, uh, was, was also uh, kind of a, the uh, forebear of Hakuin in that they both are credited with having um, massively reformed uh, the Zen school. First Da Wei, and then in China, and then Hakuin, a few centuries later. And now he's quoting that way. At all times, test to see whether you have lost the true meditation or have not lost it. In other words, whether you're aware, aware, and not lost in thought. And have, and the, and the, the true meditation also further meaning the ability to maintain one's um, centeredness, one's groundedness, even in the midst of a lot of commotion in one's daily life. That's the end of his quoting Dao Wei. And then Hakuin says, this is a generous description of the true meditation as it has been practiced by all the sages of the past. This has been the true practice, unchanged from remotest antiquity. It has been called direct mind, the Buddha nature, 
Bodhi, Nirvana, the true person without rank. This true person has never since before the kalpa of emptiness or after it had the least sign of illness or the slightest indication of even a cold. In the Lotus Sutra, he is honored as the ancient Buddha who gained enlightenment in remote kalpas. If you make offerings to him, venerate him, draw close to her and do not lose her, what disease cannot be cured, what way cannot be fulfilled? Under the law of the Buddha, even a diseased old woman or an emaciated old man if they practice true meditation without cease, can become strong persons, healthy and without infirmities. Here again we, we see this tremendous faith uh, of Hakuan, faith in the way, this method, this method of allowing the mind to settle and be centered. He continues, but even if one has a body seven or eight feet tall, even if he has the wisdom of Sariputra and the eloquence of Purna, these are Buddha's disciples, and even if he can lecture on the three sutras and the five shastras, Uh, the footnote here says there are several such group groupings, three sutras and five shastras. Shastras means commentaries. Uh, which one Hakuan had in mind cannot be determined. Yeah, so uh, should it surprise no one who's been listening to these writings of Hakuan that uh, he would sometimes play fast and loose with his references and uh, either... Yeah, just toss out things and mis misattribute things. Even if he can do all these things, even if he has penetrated to the ultimate meaning of the teachings of the five houses and the seven schools, even if his strength is sufficient to raise the tripod of the court of Chao, don't know what that is, even, don't need to, just get the spirit of it. Even if his eyes can penetrate to the remotest corners of the universe, if he does not possess this true meditation, he will no more, he will be no more than a putrid, bloated corpse. Use caution. Meditation is nothing that can be taken on lightly. The great matter of true meditation is really difficult to maintain really difficult to guard. The most pathetic thing about this degenerate age is that everyone is constantly in search of fame and profit. Let me pause there because it's the same today, isn't it? Fame and profit. Wealth, fame, 
There are those whose hearts turn toward the way, but only to make a vulgar show of things. One who is really determined to practice true meditation is difficult to find. Indeed, if you were to look for a person whose determination is set on uninterrupted true meditation, you would have difficulty in finding one among a thousand or even ten thousand persons. Uninterrupted, key word there being uh, uninterrupted true meditation, that is, extending this settled mind, this bright, aware, attentive, settled mind, extending it into all the coming and going, the commuting, the the conversing, uh, the work, of course, all the forms of work we can do to keep that go, going, to keep the this presence of mind, this mindfulness, if you will, uh, to keep it going all the time. It's a very advanced state. Let's let's face it. Who can do that for? much of a day. We have a we have a fighting chance during Sashim because we're doing so much sitting. That's the key. We're not going to get anywhere with bringing this into our daily life unless we're doing we're sitting. And the more sitting, the better. But even following the Sashim schedule of these whatever 9 or 10 hours a day, it's not easy, is it? We keep noticing our mind has wandered again. We, we keep noticing that we haven't thought about our koan, we haven't been in touch with what we're doing for minutes, many minutes maybe, maybe hours, even during Sashin. How do we, what do we do when we catch ourselves for the hundred millionth time having allowed the mind to wander. Well, what what else can we do but just return our attention? If your practice in the, while sitting is the breath, we return our attention to what it is we're doing. The physical things that we're doing. We return our mind to the present, in other words, to the direct experience of this moment. Well, I said uh, rhetorically, what else, what else can we do? Well, we know what else we can do. We can then start beating ourselves up when we learn that we've lost our awareness for the hundred millionth time. We can then start beating ourselves up and berating ourselves and judging ourselves and making a huge thing of it. Yeah, we can do that. But, of course, that's not going to get us anywhere. The sooner we can get back to the practice over and over and over again, the more we will develop this this space, this this freedom uh, where we're not bound by our habit forces. He continues, when I was 13, I came to believe in the validity of the Zen teachings. 
When I was 16, I destroyed the face that I received from my mother. So that sounds like a Kensho. At 19, I left home to become a monk. And at 35, I concealed myself at this temple. And this is uh, the, uh, well, Shoju-in, the temple where he mostly taught his life. Now I am almost 65 years of age. For some 40 years, I have cast aside all mundane affairs, cut off my ties to the world, and devoted myself solely to guarding my practice. Finally, five or six years ago, I became aware that I had attained to the state where I could continuously carry on the real, true meditation practice. It is, it is, excuse me. Often Zen masters and their students as well make constant abundance into luxurious living and the prosperity of the temple gives the style to the teaching. They drink that eloquence and a clever tongue, no, excuse me, they think that eloquence and a clever tongue make for wisdom, equate fine food and clothing with the Buddha way, make haughtiness and beauty into moral qualities, and take the faith exhibited by others as an indication that they themselves have attained the Dharma. Yeah, let's break this down. This seems, for people who are not familiar with the state of things, especially in, uh, in some of these other countries, I don't know so much about our own I haven't heard this so much, but the the uh, the luxurious living. Uh, I was told in Japan that that Zen priests there uh, make a lot of money. And this reference, thinking that eloquence and a clever tongue make for wisdom, this is very important to be able to distinguish between eloquence and we we know there's a lot of it around uh, between that and real wisdom some people just have a certain facility with words they're good with words it means nothing in terms of wisdom in fact this just springs to mind Uh, I, I read once a book about the Japanese people they don't trust people who are too articulate, too eloquent. They don't trust them. They appreciate people who can't find the words. They appreciate what's behind that, the experience behind that. When, when people can't... Um, encompass what is what is really beyond words sometimes uh, in doksan someone will say uh, oh I, I i i don't i'm having a, i don't know how to describe it it's i said you don't need to 
You don't need to describe it. What's important is you experienced it. I'm not talking about awakening. I mean, other experiences. The, the deepest experiences, the most moving experiences, are very difficult to put into words. He continues, but saddest of all, they make the human body, and that always means body-mind, not just body. Uh, everything we're endowed with, this body-mind complex. They make the human body, this thing so difficult to obtain, a slave to their search for fame, and thus bury the unsurpassed Buddha-mind under the dust pile of delusions. For this invitation, for that offering ceremony, they adorn themselves lavishly in inappropriate silken gowns and preach recklessly about the difficult-to-attain doctrines of Zen and the Dharma, even though they do not understand them themselves. Yeah, I have to say that I see this also in senior uh, teachers, Japanese teachers, and not maybe not just Japanese, but I'm thinking of a couple in particular who have such a wardrobe of silken robes. When dealing with the uneducated layman, they give forth with the eloquence of Kung Ming or Zhu Fang. Um, yeah, these were two people in ancient China noted for their, uh, famed for their eloquence. In deftly acquiring offerings of money that represent much backbreaking toil on the part of the populace, they would appear to have gained the miraculous powers of a Magagliana or a Sariputra. Deftly acquiring offerings of money. This speaks to the caginess of these these monks, their their um, craftiness in manipulating their uh, lay supporters, seeking to steal temporary fame and profit. They neither believe in karma nor fear its recompense. When the time to die arrives and the solitary lamp flickers as they lie halfway between life and death, they cry and moan. The seven upside-downs and the eight upsets assail them. The footnote here says, unclear. Hakuin is probably referring to the seven or eight false views, whatever those are. This is such a evocative phrase, isn't it? When the time to die arrives and the solitary lamp flickers as they lie halfway between life and death. Just, let's just pause and imagine that. Because I don't, I think it's just all too easy for us just to run along through our lives year after year, decade after decade, busy, 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 without 
pausing to consider what lies ahead. The solitary lamp flickers as they lie halfway between life and death. suspended outside the Zendo at Arnold Park from what I remember (laughs) 10 months ago or at least we used to a wooden block with the following inscription on it very famous in Zen great is the matter of birth and death life slips quickly by time waits for no one wake up wake up don't waste a moment And uh, Rinzai, Linchi, the murderous demon of impermanence strikes in a single instant without choosing between high and low, old and young. Try this out. If you find that it's you still can uh, just put the certainty of death and the uncertainty of the time of death out of your mind and just carry on as though we're not like fish in a pool that is being steadily drained, then what might work to open your eyes is to reflect on people close to you who you will be separated from the people closest to us we will be separated from someday. Spouse, children, parents. It's only a matter of time, isn't it? It's just a matter of time. Either we will go before they do or they will go before we do, but there will be a parting. This is the time to come to terms with life and death, to face death. And we can do that. We don't have to wait until we're lying and alone with a flickering lamp. We face death every time we detach from our thoughts and we turn the mind into the darkness of this no-mindedness. Death, what is death? Death uh, is disappearing, the loss of self, the disappearing of the self or other. Let's make it that, yeah. The loss of self and other, the disappearing of self and other, that's what happens in deep absorption in the koan or the breath. There's no self, no other. 
every time we do that, every time we turn the mind away from thoughts to this realm of no mind that is the particular practice we're working at, every time we do that, we are practicing, we are exercising this ability to come to terms with death, no self. It's no exaggeration, I, I firmly believe, to see that Sashin, or even, even Zazen, daily Zazen, but let's now, it's Sashin. Sashin is the most important thing we could do, anyone could do. Because when we learn to let go of thoughts, when we learn to bring our attention back to the direct experience of this moment, we're not just becoming, we're not just training ourselves in how to die, how to, how to accept and face death. We're training ourselves in how to live. It's living in a cloud of thoughts is no way to live. What is that? Going through with our through life, morning, afternoon, evening with our mind buzzing with thoughts that's yes that's existing but is it truly living yes we, we we turn the mind to the future when we need to plan something we can retrieve memories in the past but otherwise what a difference it is to move through our daily lives in direct experience and not in a haze of thoughts. So much more vivid, vivid way of living. Complete. Akwan now goes further than I than I just did in in uh, trying to wake people up to their mortality. He says Driven mad, he's back in this uh, death ward with a flicker with a flickering lamp. Driven mad, with no place to put their hands and feet, they die so agonizing a death that their disciples and followers cannot bear to look at them. Make no mistake about it. With people today disposed in this way, what Zen practitioner, no matter what province he came from, and no matter who he was could possibly achieve the status of a Buddha or a patriarch. By a strange series of circumstances, people have come to this dreary place to spend the summer's meditation session. Is there any reason that I should spread evil teachings among them? I am an old monk who lives in a dilapidated building and knows nothing of the world, but I do make, but I do not make the Buddha Dharma into a sweet and simple thing. So, no apologies from Hakuin about reminding people of the preciousness of this opportunity. And it's, it's this opportunity of a, of a human life is never more precious than in Sashin, where this, this 
great, great pregnant opportunity is right here. Our chance to awaken from this nightmare of self and other, us and them, right and wrong. Here's one of um, the most, more memorable of the many memorable Hakoan stories. At any rate, there is no worse thing than for the Zen practitioner to treasure his body, give it value, and pay it favor. That is, in modern terms, say, giving it uh, too much favor. Of course, we, we, we need to uh, attend to our health. Uh, that's what Siddhartha himself found after six years of austerity when he realized that he had to switch to the middle way. But Hakuan here, in his, in his very dramatic style, uh, is warning about <coughs> being attached to the body, certainly attached to vanity, but even more than that here. He says, one year when a large number of wolves were ravaging the village at the foot of the mountain, I went for seven nights to sit in meditation in the graveyards hereabouts. I did this to test whether or not I could practice true uninterrupted meditation while surrounded by wolves that were sniffing at my ears and throat. You can, you can take that with a grain of salt, please. But... Back to Hakuan. Even if surrounded by snakes and water spirits, a person, once he is determined to do something, must resolve not to leave unfinished what he has started. No matter how cold or hungry he may be, he must bear it. No matter how much wind and rain may come, he must withstand it. Even if he must enter into the heart of fire or plunge to the bottom of icy waters, he must open the eye that the Buddhas and patriarchs have opened, in other words, come to awakening, achieve the status that the Buddhas and patriarchs have achieved, penetrate the essential meaning of the teaching, and see through to the ultimate principle. This uh, reference to enter the heart of fire or plunge to the bottom of icy waters, we see these as, as vivid metaphors for the kinds of trials we we are called upon to face and and prevail through in uh, extended sittings like Sashin where we are we are uncovering uh, the depths of the mind where so much can be um, can be threatening he must smash the brains of Zen monks everywhere, pull out the nails, knock out the wedges, and thereby recompense his deep obligation to the Buddhas and the patriarchs. 
if you devote your efforts uninterruptedly and without backsliding to fulfilling the four vows, where is there a place for disease to strike? If you take the practice of the ancient patriarchs to yourself and are never negligent, you are greatly to be venerated. But, you, but if you are careless, you will become a false practitioner of Zen. By false, I mean someone who has the mind of a fraud. There is no one who consciously wishes to change his defectless body into a fraud. But if you do not follow well the examples of the ancient masters, do not deepen the mind that seeks the way and talk of Zen and gain the veneration of others. Although you possess only a modicum of understanding yourself, you will become a splendid fraud. If you find that being circumspect in conduct and guarding your thoughts is not sufficient, then you would do well to starve to death in some distant field or freeze to death in the depths of the mountains. Gold is still gold even when wrapped in straw. And then he concludes, These and other things were told to two or three attendant monks from eight in the evening until three the next morning. Yet so fascinated were they that it seemed as though only a moment had passed. They shed tears of gratitude, and his words were engraved on their minds, and their skins broke out in cold sweat. Later, whenever I became ill, I thought of what he had told us, and my heart would suddenly be struck with shame, and my ills would seem not so serious after all. Perhaps the gist of what I have written will be of some help to people in the sick room. Well, you could say we're all in the sick room. Until full enlightenment, we're all in the sick room. Let's do everything we can now, especially in this last day and a half, to get out of this sick room, to find what is beyond sickness. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. <clears throat> 